Hey, Elizabeth Slattery here. Before we get into today's episode, we would be so grateful if you would take a minute to subscribe to DIST on your favorite podcast platform and then leave us a five-star rating and a review. And go ahead and tell a friend about it. I'll wait. Okay, done? Now on to the show. A central feature of our Constitution's separation of powers is that Congress cannot give away its lawmaking power to the other branches of government. Known as the non-delegation doctrine, this core protection of our liberty has only been half-heartedly enforced by the courts for much of the past century. But in 1935, non-delegation enjoyed one good year. And yet, a dissenting voice quickly became the new majority, and the non-delegation doctrine mostly vanished. In recent years, however, several justices have expressed an interest in revisiting that old doctrine. I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. This week on DIST, we're looking at Panama Refining Company versus Ryan and Gundy versus United States. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated, in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. The Schoolhouse Rock classic, Three Ring Government, teaches children about the separation of powers embodied in the Constitution by comparing the three branches of government to a three-ring circus. The song explains that no one part can be more powerful than any other. The president is the ringmaster of the government. Congress is tasked with passing laws and juggling bills. And the courts take the law and they tame the crimes, balancing the wrongs with your rights. But Schoolhouse Rock's basic overview of American government overlooks the largest and perhaps most powerful part of the federal government, administrative agencies. You know, the ones, the alphabet agencies like the FCC, SEC, NRC, and so on. Many of these agencies perform legislative, executive, and judicial functions by issuing regulations that bind the public, enforcing those regulations, and settling disputes involving those regulations in their very own in-house courts. James Madison called an accumulation of these powers the very definition of tyranny. The founders sought to prevent such tyranny, thereby safeguarding Americans' individual liberty, by dividing the powers of the federal government among three coordinate branches. The modern administrative state, however, blurs the separation of powers and the system of checks and balances, putting our liberty in jeopardy. Critics of the Schoolhouse Rock version of government say strict adherence to the separation of powers is just not realistic in today's world. The Constitution was written in the horse and buggy era, as President Roosevelt once remarked, and the challenges society faces today are too complex for Congress, a.k.a. the people's representatives, to tackle. Instead, these critics say, we need to trust expert administrators in the federal bureaucracy to manage society and, by extension, our lives. The rise of the administrative state didn't happen overnight. Instead, it can be traced over the course of the past century or so. The progressive era led to the creation and strengthening of agencies like the Federal Trade Commission and the Food and Drug Administration. The New Deal brought the Securities and Exchange Commission, the National Labor Relations Board, and the Federal Communications Commission. The 1970s heralded the Environmental Protection Agency, and more recently has come the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The result is that administrative agencies today poke into every nook and cranny of daily life, as Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in a 2013 dissent. Indeed, the modern administrative state touches everything from toothpaste to trains, highways to healthcare, and gas stoves to Greek yogurt. 
And this accumulation of power can't be attributed to just one constitutional failing. It starts with Congress passing the buck by giving broad discretion to agencies to regulate large areas of private life with little guidance other than that they issue regulations in the public interest. And oversight of agencies by the president or courts is limited. There are so many agencies today that it's nearly impossible for the president to actively supervise them all. And what's worse, Congress has even insulated some agency heads from the president's control by limiting his or her ability to fire them. Thankfully, the Supreme Court has become increasingly skeptical of this practice, but some agency leaders still enjoy this tenure protection. And let's not forget, rather than scrutinize agency assertions of power, judges often defer to an agency's interpretation of the very laws it's charged with carrying out or the regulations it issues. Instead of saying what the law is, judges take the agency's word at the expense of an individual or business challenging that very assertion of authority. Over the course of the next few episodes, we'll take a closer look at the Supreme Court's opinions that have enabled the administrative state to grow and become entrenched. And of course, there are plenty of dissents. In this first episode, we're looking at how the dissent in a New Deal era case involving the non-delegation doctrine quickly overtook the majority and became the law. To start, you're probably wondering, what is the non-delegation doctrine? We asked John Yu, a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, and friend of the pod, for an overview. It stands for the idea. It's a very simple idea. The idea is just that Congress can't give away delegate its legislative power to other branches of government because the Constitution says the legislative power here and granted is vested in Congress. And so the non-delegation doctrine stands for the idea that the courts will stop Congress from giving away too much of its power. So the textual argument is Article 1 of the Constitution says the legislative powers here and granted are vested in Congress doesn't say are vested in the agencies, doesn't say it's vested in the president or in the courts. It says the legislative power is vested in Congress. There isn't a non-delegation clause in the Constitution, but as John put it. So the non-delegation doctrine, it doesn't really suffer, I think, a crisis of legitimacy because there's no because there isn't a sentence that says in the text, you shall not delegate legislative powers because we commonly infer these structural principles of government from the text. Some of the most important decisions of our Supreme Court are based on inferences from the structure of judicial review. The most, maybe the, the most important case for the Supreme Court, Marbury versus Madison. Uh, many people have pointed out that the text does not have judicial review, right? The right of the courts to strike down a federal law as being unconstitutional. Uh, if you read Marbury versus Madison very closely, the uh, textual basis for judicial review are really weak, if almost non-existent. Uh, but I do think judicial review comes out of the structure of the Constitution. Another example, though, of an uh, important principle that's not, nowhere stated explicitly is federalism. You don't see the word federalism in the Constitution. Again, we infer it from the Tenth Amendment and the creation and existence of the states and the fact that they existed before this federal Constitution, but the word federalism doesn't appear anywhere either. Looking at history reinforces that early Congresses were concerned about running afoul of the non-delegation principle. Here's Chad Squitteri, an assistant professor of law at Catholic University. There were debates concerning whether Congress could delegate its authority. So just one example of this is referred to as the Post Roads Debate of 1791. So as background, uh, the Constitution vests Congress with the authority to establish post roads and post offices. 
1791, there was a proposed bill uh, that would have had Congress establish those post routes with quite a bit of detail. And there was an amendment put forward by a representative that essentially said, rather than Congress establishing those post routes, let's have the president establish post routes from time to time as he deems fit or something along those lines. And there was debate uh, in Congress regarding uh, whether Congress could delegate that type of discretion over to the president. And in the end, that uh, delegation was rejected and replaced with language that required Congress to establish a post road itself, uh, although the language gave a little bit of authority to the postmaster to extend uh, the post roads uh, when necessary. So that type of history shows the historical support for the non-delegation doctrines. But it wouldn't stay this way forever. In 1825, the Supreme Court heard Wayman versus Southard, a case involving Congress's delegation of authority to the federal district courts to adopt rules of procedure that track state court procedural rules. In an opinion upholding that delegation, the great Chief Justice John Marshall explained that while there are some important subjects that must be entirely regulated by the legislature itself, Congress may empower the other branches of government to, quote, fill up the details of less important subjects. But as John pointed out, he didn't explain what the difference is between the major issues and the minor issues. But even then, at the very beginning, you have Chief Justice Marshall saying there, Congress can't delegate everything. The problem is figuring out where that line is. Fast forward to 1892, when the court heard another case implicating the non-delegation doctrine. In Marshall Fields & Co. versus Clark, a group of merchants sued the government over tariffs assessed on goods they wanted to import, specifically woolen dress goods and silk embroideries. The statute at issue gave the president authority to decide whether and when to enforce various tariffs on certain goods. Writing for the majority, Justice John Marshall Harlan reasoned that this exercise of discretion was permissible because the law directed the president to activate or not activate a certain set of tariffs based upon facts he found to exist at any given time. Because nothing involving the expediency or the just operation of such legislation was left to the determination of the president, this did not offend the non-delegation principle. But not everyone agreed. Justice Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar say that three times fast, the first Southerner appointed to the court following the Civil War concurred in the judgment but dissented from the court's reasoning. Joined by Chief Justice Melville Fuller, Justice Lamar characterized the challenge law as repugnant to the first section of the first article of the Constitution because it delegated legislative power to the president. He further explained that no part of this legislative power can be delegated by Congress to any other department of the government, executive or judicial, is an axiom in constitutional law and is universally recognized as a principle essential to the integrity and maintenance of the system of government ordained by the Constitution. About 25 years later, in another case involving adjusting tariffs, the court developed the standard that governs non-delegation cases to this day. The case is J.W. Hampton Jr. and Company versus United States, a unanimous opinion by Chief Justice William Howard Taft, who, of course, previously served as the president of the United States. Taft wrote, If Congress shall lay down by legislative act an intelligible principle to which the person or body authorized to fix such rates is directed to conform, such legislative act is not a forbidden delegation of legislative power. We asked John and Chad, what exactly is an intelligible principle? I wish I could explain it, but nobody knows what it means. To tell you the truth, the intelligible principle test is somewhat not very intelligible itself. The idea is that it's Congress's power and Congress needs to exercise that power. And if it's going to solicit help in exercising it, it needs to guide the person exercising its power with some type of principle, something that is intelligible to a court to look and say, 
yes, Congress, you, you gave some type of instruction when you were delegating uh, the authority to exercise this power. So it's really a, a bare bones uh, standard that, that is quite easily met. Scholars and judges would later surmise that Taft's intelligible principle was meant to synthesize earlier cases, not set off a revolutionary sea change in the law. And indeed, it was barely mentioned in two important non-delegation cases a few years later. That brings us to 1935, the one good year for non-delegation. Here's John with the details. Put it in this broader historical context, there's the Great Depression. Uh, FDR comes to office in 1933, passes in the first 100 days, sweeping federal laws of a kind never before seen uh, in our history to uh, basically transfer broad powers of the economy and society from Congress to the executive branches, to the New Deal agencies, on the grounds that those agencies would be better able to fight, quote unquote, the war against the Great Depression. And so, in fact, a lot of these laws are of a kind one would only see in war, in wartime. So, the most notorious of these is called the National Industrial Recovery Act, which gave to the executive the power to control all industries and markets in the country. I mean, it's incredible when you look at it now to set quotas on the production of any good, to set standards for how they were to be made, how what standards they had to set, to set prices, to set wages. It was essentially giving all power of the economy to the executive branch. But in 1935, there were a series of cases which challenged the New Deal Acts. Two of these cases concerned Congress's delegation of authority to the executive branch. Here's Chad with a quick summary of Panama Refining Company versus Ryan and ALA Schechter Poultry Corporation versus United States, better known as the hot oil and sick chicken cases. So in Panama Refining, uh, that case concerned the sale of hot oil, which was oil produced in excess of quotas set by state governments. So the case concerned a federal statute that empowered the president to approve of a code of fair competition for the petroleum industry. An oil industry plaintiff sued to prevent the enforcement of that code, arguing that, you know, giving the president the power to approve of such a code meant unconstitutionally delegating legislative power to the president. Uh, the second case, uh, also decided in 1935, was Schechter Poultry. Uh, and there, a statute purported to grant the president the authority to approve a live poultry code. And the defendants in that case were indicted for reasons relating to the code, including the selling of a, quote, unfit chicken or sick chicken. And considering whether Congress could delegate the authority to promulgate that code, the court looked to the statute to see if Congress had, quote, itself established the standards of legal obligation, thus performing its essential legislative function, or by the failure to enact such standards, has attempted to transfer that function to others. In both cases, the court held Congress unconstitutionally delegated legislative power to the president without limiting his discretion. Schechter Poultry was unanimous, but in Panama Refining, Justice Benjamin Cordozo, known as one of the three musketeers, wrote that the act, read in its entirety, did limit the president's discretion. Here's Chad summing up Cardozo's dissent. He made uh, two important points. First, he noted that the delegation focused the president's attention on specific areas of the economy. As he put it, there was no grant to the executive of any roving commission to inquire into the evils and then, upon discovering them, do anything he pleases. 
Instead, Justice Cardozo believed that the president had to, quote, confine himself to a particular commodity and to that commodity when produced or withdrawn from storage and contravention of the policy and statutes of the states. Uh, the second reason, he said that the president's discretion was sufficiently cabined if one looked at the relevant statute more generally as a whole, rather than the specific provision that gave the president the authority to approve the competition code. So particularly at the start of the relevant statute, Congress had expressed various statements concerning its quote of quote, eliminating unfair competitive practices and quote, conserving natural resources. So for Justice Cardozo, those types of statements were enough to constitute a constitutional delegation. Cardozo urged the other justices to adopt a flexible view of the separation of powers that would give the political branches more leeway to address pressing problems. He wrote, the separation of powers between the executive and Congress is not a doctrinaire concept to be made use of with pedantic rigor. There must be sensible approximation. There must be elasticity of adjustment in response to the practical necessities of government, which cannot foresee today the developments of tomorrow in their nearly infinite variety. And Cardoso was proud of the dissent, as Chad recounts. An interesting fact about his dissent in Panama refining is that in a private letter to his cousin, he actually wrote that he had obtained uh, more glory from his dissent in that case uh, than any of his majority opinions. Although Schechter Poultry was unanimous, Justice Cardoso wrote a concurrence to explain why he agreed with the majority here when he disagreed with them in Panama refining. Here's Chad. So in Schechter Poultry, Cardoso believed that the statute, quote, in effect, is a roving commission to inquire into evils and upon discovery, correct them. The, the thing that he said wasn't present in Panama refining. And thus he, the delegated authority in Cardozo's eyes was not, quote, canalized within the banks that keep it from overflowing, but was instead unconfined and vagrant. So in Cardozo's words, the statute was delegation running right. But it was just one good year. As John observed. The thing that the centers, they won, right? Cardozo won. If you trace it back, I mean, you could say if the Constitution represents this kind of common law, limited government, small bureaucracy, very few statutes approach to government of the 18th century. It was uh, intellectuals of the late 19th, early 20th century, the progressives like Woodrow Wilson tried to replace it with this kind of government, which they copied really from the Prussian bureaucracy, which was create agencies filled with the experts legislatures and politics are dirty. They don't know what they're doing. It's just corruption. Uh, so take the power away from them, give it to the bureaucracy, which are going to be filled with experts, give them great power and insulate them from any political or legal control and just let them do what's best. Cause they, it's almost like we're, it's like Plato on steroids, right? You have all these little philosopher Kings who are, you know, deputy, deputy assistant secretaries and this and that Cardozo and the progressives, you know, Cardozo was one of the great progressives, Cardozo, Brandeis, a lot of the dissenters in these new deal cases, they uh, thought, that the Wilson administration of World War I, this progressive vision of a super powerful bureaucracy, that was modern government. And they had to cast aside this old 18th century constitution that was written, as FDR would say, for the horse and buggy age. And they need a modern government to govern right, the, the complicated economy of the 20th century. How could Congress do that? How could the courts do that? Only experts could do that. The courts said, uh, Congress had gone too far in the National Recovery Act and by giving the executive just full power of the economy. But those are the last times 
that the courts have actually struck down a law on the non-delegation doctrine. And why was that? So part of what happens after Carter and Panama refining and Schechter, so you have that great confrontation, the justices who were in the majority in those cases all basically retire. And by, I think, is it by 1944, by the end of FDR's term, he's appointed eight of the nine Supreme Court justices. And that Supreme Court says, oh, there are no limits on federal power. The Supreme Court flips on all these issues. They stop enforcing the non-delegation doctrine. In Wickard versus Filburn, they basically turn around and they say, oh, the government can regulate even a farmer, what a farmer does with surplus wheat, right, that he's not going to sell. Uh, you know, they, 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 basically, they basically say that the government can stop you from growing wheat if it wants to, that you just want to eat yourself. The separation powers is not going to stop the government from delegating and experimenting on uh, designing new forms of government. And so the non-delegation doctrine disappears. After the one good year, the non-delegation doctrine would appear from time to time. But as John put it, So there's a number of cases that still raise the non-delegation doctrine, but they all fail. Now, the court always still says uh, Congress must provide an intelligible principle. At the same time, the court never explains what that is. Once in a while, a dissenting or concurring justice would reference the non-delegation doctrine. Justice William Rehnquist, before his elevation to chief justice, wrote a concurrence in a case looking at Congress's delegation to the Secretary of Labor, the task of issuing workplace standards concerning exposure to toxic materials. Though the court invalidated the standard, it was not on non-delegation grounds. Rehnquist concurred in the judgment, noting that the non-delegation doctrine promoted the value of ensuring important choices of social policy are made by Congress, the branch of our government most responsive to the popular will. Writing in the summer issue of Regulation Magazine, a professor from the University of Chicago quipped that though Rehnquist's opinion was the most thorough discussion of the subject in any Supreme Court decision since 1935, it did, quote, little more than recite Chief Justice Taft's conclusion that delegations of legislative authority must be judged according to common sense and the inherent necessities of the governmental coordination. And one can probably not intelligently say much more than that, end quote. This wasn't the professor's last word on the non-delegation doctrine. He joined the Supreme Court, taking the seat left vacant when Justice Rehnquist was elevated to chief justice. That professor, of course, was Antonin Scalia. Just a few years into his Supreme Court tenure, the court heard a case challenging Congress's authorization of the U.S. Sentencing Commission to set sentencing guidelines for federal crimes. The lone dissenter, Justice Scalia, called the commission a junior varsity Congress that exercised a lawmaking power completely divorced from any responsibility for execution of the law. And in a case concerning the EPA's authority to set national ambient air quality standards, Justice Clarence Thomas noted in a concurrence that the parties wrangled over constitutional doctrine with barely a nod to the text of the Constitution. Although this court has treated the intelligible principle requirement as the only constitutional limit on congressional grants of power, the Constitution does not speak of intelligible principles. There was never more than one or two justices at a time who seemed concerned about Congress's practice of giving away more and more of its power to the executive branch and agencies. But 84 years after the one good year, a dissent offered a glimmer of hope for a reinvigorated non-delegation doctrine. 
the fall of 2018, the Supreme Court heard a case challenging a provision of the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act, a.k.a. SORNA, that empowered the U.S. Attorney General to decide how and when to apply the act retroactively. As John explained, So if you're a sex offender, you get out of prison, you still have to register when you move and live in a certain place. And then people who live there get notified that you've moved in and so on. Congress laid out a detailed scheme of registration requirements for sex offenders who were convicted after SORNA passed. But for offenders who were convicted before SORNA became the law, Congress shifted responsibility to the attorney general. Less than a year after SORNA passed, then-Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez issued an interim rule applying all of SORNA's registration requirements to pre-act offenders. But in the years that followed, with each new attorney general came a new spin on SORNA's application to pre-act offenders. Herman Gundy, who was convicted of sexually assaulting a minor before SORNA passed and then failed to comply with the registration requirements, challenged Congress's delegation of authority to the attorney general. Here's Justice Kagan with a summary of the court's opinion. The opinion I'm going to describe is written for a plurality of the court, four justices from an eight-person court. Only eight, because Brett Kavanaugh had not been confirmed when the court heard oral arguments, so he didn't participate in the ultimate decision. But, as Justice Kagan was saying... Another justice came to the same result in the case, but didn't sign on to any of the reasoning in the opinion. Bundy argues that Section 2093D violates that principle by giving the Attorney General complete control over whether SORNA's registration requirements should or should not apply to pre-act offenders. The four of us don't think that's what Section 20913D says. Although Congress can't delegate its power to make laws, it can give executive agencies substantial discretion to implement and enforce the laws. And that is what happened here, especially as compared to the broad delegations we've routinely upheld in the past. The attorney general's authority under Section 2093D is highly limited. It is just to implement SORNA's registration requirements to pre-act offenders as soon as feasible. The upshot of all this is that we uphold the constitutionality of Section 2093D thus continuing to apply SORNA to all pre-act offenders. Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, and Sonia Sotomayor joined that opinion. Justice Samuel Alito concurred in the judgment. Here's what Alito had to say. Since 1935, the court has uniformly rejected non-delegation arguments and has upheld provisions that authorized agencies to adopt important rules pursuant to extraordinarily capacious standards. If a majority of this court were willing to reconsider the approach we have taken for the past 84 years, I would support that effort. But because a majority is not willing to do that, it would be freakish to single out the provision at issue here for special treatment. Because I cannot say that the statute lacks a discernible standard that is adequate under the approach this court has taken for many years, I vote to affirm. In other words, Justice Alito is definitely interested in taking a closer look at how the court handles delegation questions. But because there were only eight justices at the time, even if he sided with the three dissenters, it would have been a tie. And it takes a majority to reverse a lower court's judgment. Turning to the dissent, Justice Neil Gorsuch led the charge, joined by Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Thomas. It begins, The Constitution promises that only the people's elected representatives may adopt new federal laws restricting liberty. Yet the statute before us scrambles that design. 
It purports to endow the nation's chief prosecutor with the power to write his own criminal code governing the lives of a half million citizens. Yes, those affected are some of the least popular among us. But if a single executive branch official can write laws restricting the liberty of this group of persons, what does that mean for the next? Justice Gorsuch acknowledged the court was part of the problem because the intelligible principle test had mutated into a rubber stamp for Congress giving away its lawmaking power. But what would take the intelligible principle's place? As John explained. Justice Gorsuch says, actually, I would try to go back to Chief Justice Marshall's opinion in this you know, Southard case and try to distinguish the kinds of cases where Congress must make the policy decision, but the executive branch fills in the minor details. He calls for the court to identify what's that list. But he famously says in this dissent, he says, but what's the test? He says, I'm not sure what the test is. Nobody's really identified a test. So I call on people like lower courts, scholars, figure out what the test is. While Justice Gorsuch didn't come up with the precise test the court should adopt, he did offer some guiding principles. Chad summarized them. The first concerns the difference between important questions and mere details. And Justice Gorsuch explains that Congress must make the important decisions itself, but can delegate the authority to fill in the details to administrative agencies. Uh, The second guiding principle that he lays out concerns executive fact-finding. So pursuant to this guiding principle, Congress can make the applicability of a rule governing private conduct dependent on executive fact-finding. So for one example, Justice Gorsuch gave was that Congress can empower the president to decide whether a particular nation is interfering with American trade. And assuming the president finds, yep, this nation is interfering with American trade, well, then uh, some trade policies would automatically go into effect. They would turn on that executive finding a fact. And the third guiding principle that Justice Gorsuch provides concerns a so-called non-legislative responsibilities. And pursuant to this guiding principle, courts are more willing to accept delegations in areas of law where other branches have their own constitutional authority. So, for example, in the foreign affairs context, uh, courts are more willing to tolerate delegations to the president because the president has his own foreign affairs powers. With an eye toward the future, Justice Gorsuch concluded his dissent. In a future case with a full panel, I remain hopeful that the court may yet recognize that, while Congress can enlist considerable assistance from the executive branch in filling up details and finding facts, it may never hand off to the nation's chief prosecutor the power to write his own criminal code. That is delegation running riot. Justice Gorsuch's dissent was, as one scholar put it, the opinion that launched a thousand law reviews. Numerous articles, briefs, and even a few books have attempted to answer Justice Gorsuch's plea for a new test. And as Chad pointed out, there was a case called Appall v. United States, and Justice Kavanaugh authored a statement respecting the denial of certiorari in that case. And in that statement, he noted that he would be interested in uh, considering efforts to revive the non-delegation doctrine in the appropriate case if it was brought uh, before the court. So I went to law school because I didn't want to do math anymore, but that sounds like three plus one plus one equals five, which makes a majority of the Supreme Court. For those keeping score at home, the five are Justices Gorsuch, Thomas, Kavanaugh, Alito, and Chief Justice Roberts. But despite this good news for those who cheer the non-delegation doctrine's return, there's an elephant in the room. 
The court has cited another doctrine in a handful of recent cases challenging agency authority. Known as the Major Questions Doctrine, it holds that an agency must have clear congressional authorization for authority over matters of sweeping economic and political significance. In other words, Congress must explicitly grant authority to an agency. An agency's interpretation of ambiguous language doesn't cut it because Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes, as Justice Scalia once put it. We asked John and Chad about the interaction between these two doctrines. Here's John. The major questions doctrine says we're not going to infer from a silent statute that's never been interpreted this way, that Congress gave a power to the agencies to regulate on a major question. And when it says major question, it means they say the court then says, you know, a question that has is a major question of economic or social import. There's enormous criticism of this doctrine, right? Because it appears from almost nowhere. I mean, there's only one or two precedents for it. And if the court doesn't define what is a question, it doesn't define what's major. Right? So it's like, you know, so you only know it when you see it. Actually, it's come up in three high profile cases just in the past year and a half. In West Virginia versus EPA, the court held Congress had not given the EPA authority to restructure our nation's energy sector to address climate change. In NFIB versus Department of Labor, the court held Congress did not empower OSHA to mandate COVID-19 vaccines as a workplace safety standard. And in Alabama Realtors Association versus HHS, the court held that Congress did not authorize the CDC to impose a nationwide eviction moratorium. And there were a few earlier cases, too, such as UARG versus EPA involving the agency's regulation of greenhouse gas emissions, King versus Burwell challenging an IRS interpretation of the Affordable Care Act, and FDA versus Brown and Williams involving the agency's authority to regulate tobacco products. But as John was saying, I think even if the court never fully revives the non-delegation doctrine, it has a, you know, sort of, um, it's like the minor league team is still there, right? Like the AAA baseball version of the major league team is playing the game through the major questions doctrine. From Chad's perspective. Well, I think the major questions doctrine is definitely an attempt to enforce the non-delegation doctrine. It kind of is like a middle road. It only enforces the non-delegation principle for the major cases, uh, whatever uh, that might mean, uh, but not the minor cases. I would prefer the non-delegation doctrine to be applied across the board to both the major and minor cases. The major questions doctrine is, in effect, a way for the court to avoid delegation issues. A few justices have confirmed as much, most recently with Justice Gorsuch explaining in the vaccine mandate case, quote, On the one hand, OSHA claims the power to issue a nationwide mandate on a major question, but cannot trace its authority to do so to any clear congressional mandate. On the other hand, if the statutory subsection the agency cites really did endow OSHA with the power it asserts, that law would likely constitute an unconstitutional delegation of legislative authority. When faced with a vague statute that could be read as giving the president or an agency unbridled power to set policy, the justices may simply choose the easier course, hold that Congress didn't clearly authorize such power and ignore the constitutional question. We'll have to wait and see if the major questions doctrine will postpone the next good year for the non-delegation doctrine. And here's hoping when that time comes, the proper separation of powers will be restored and our individual liberty will be safeguarded. 
please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback. So send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. Don't tell me, don't tell me it's called Sorry. the hot oil. Yeah, darn it. <laughs> the hot oil case. Play the Jeopardy uh, music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does Stanford allow us to say pissing in the wind anymore? I looked at the list of banned words and I didn't see that one. Liberty, liberty. Like that commercial. Oh. I, liberty, liberty, liberty. Oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Can I say, I just love how liberty forward you are with this. I just. I, it really touched. Well, apparently me. you've never read any of my SOP stuff. I'm very like you must. I you're right. I don't because most SOP people are so boring and forget that it exists for a reason and it's not for its own sake. It's for liberty. Liberty. Exactly. To what end? Thank to you. what end? Wow. Human flourishing. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I'm a cool SOPer. <laughs> <laughs> not a regular SOPer. I just thought of a meme I want to make, and it's the Texas flag that says "Come and get it," but instead of having like a cannon on it, it has a gas stove. <laughs> come, come and take Amen. my gas stove. I freaking love it. It's the only thing that worked when we had a power outage. I tried to give you a signal. You did. I was just blind. <sighs> <laughs> can you do it yeah. why he agreed with the majority here yeah, yeah, yeah. i realized afterward <laughs> <clears throat> <I> he agree <laughs> i don't know i'm just i'm just all you're just reading you're just reading you're just reading i'm just reading Ugh, i'm uh yeah i'm a lot of things <laughs> Fabulous. I'm eight months pregnant is what I am. Still doesn't make sense to me why he didn't just do it, but okay. Because it was for a sex offender and it wouldn't have made a difference. It wouldn't have made so he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna do it for a sex offender. Well. If the, if it wasn't actually gonna change the law. Kinda with him. <laughs> Alito's gonna Alito. It's the end of my libertarianism is these SOP cases for sex offenders. Uh oh, it's on recording. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, put it out there to the public. I have a special Hang high. special thing against <laughs> sex offenders. Sue me. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs>